What's new, pussycat? Whoa, whoa, whoa. What's new, pussycat? Whoa, 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 whoa. Pussycat, pussycat, I've got flowers and lots of hours to spend with you. So go and bother your cute little pussycat nose. Pussycat, pussycat, I love you. Yeah. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And this week, I will be examining 1992's masterpiece. The Mick Garris classic, Sleepwalkers. This is one that I've been meaning to get to for a while, guys. Uh, it's not one I was really looking forward to getting to, but it's one that I knew that I had to, to get to at some point. And truth be told, I've never actually seen Sleepwalkers before, but I felt that I needed to, to review it for the purposes of this podcast, so I did it. <laughs> I did it. It's how I spent my Saturday night. Uh, and I will be talking about it um, in this episode. So, just so everyone knows, um, I, I just I, I, over the last I don't know three, four episodes, and even before that, um, here and there, I, I haven't had my my the microphone I I typically use. So if the audio quality is not matching the bulk of the episodes that I've put out, I do apologize. A friend of mine, uh, he started his own podcast, and because he's doing his podcast regularly, um, it's just easier for him to keep the, the the microphone. If I start to get back into a weekly routine, I will take the microphone back. Um, and this particular review was kind of a spur of the moment, so it's not like I could you know, go get it from him right now. So I don't have the microphone. I do apologize if you if you're listening to it and you're like, ugh, what's with this quality? Um, it's it's simply because my microphone is is elsewhere. So I do apologize for that. And for anyone that's tuning in for the first time, guys, just welcome, welcome to the Stephen King cast. Uh, as I said at the, the top of this episode, it, it was designed as one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Um, each week I would review each uh, entry in his bibliography in the chronological order of publication, and I've done that. So since the conclusion of the, the mission statement of the podcast, I've you know, covered some uh, movies that I never got around to. I have reviewed um, uh, Stephen King-inspired uh, works by other authors. I've reviewed some Joe Hill stuff. I reviewed Stranger Things. Um, and I, I still don't know what the future of the podcast holds. Um, I mean, I still need a lot of cleanup work around his short stories, and there's definitely a lot more movies that, that I can touch. So it's not as if there is a, a dearth of Stephen King-related uh, content for me to dive into. So just I just want to kind of put that out there that it's I have... Uh, successfully finished the the first part of this podcast, and the 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 next half of the the podcast uh, sort of just shapes itself as it goes along. And for everyone else that has been uh, through this podcast either from the beginning or for a long time now, welcome back, everyone. I can't do it without you. Um, I hope everyone is enjoying the month of January, two thousand seventeen. Two thousand sixteen is in the rearview mirror, and I. I hope for everyone's sake that uh, you all have a, a fantastic year 
this year. So just in terms of, of Stephen King news, uh, there's really not much to report at the moment. I, I'm telling you guys, I'm, I'm looking forward to this Dark Tower trailer. I, I posted on, um, on Facebook recently that right now we, we are in okay uh, territory. Nothing to really worry about if the Dark Tower trailer comes out soon. By the end of January, if it comes out before the end of January, then um, we should be right on target for what this movie is and what this movie is going to be. So I, what I had done, I looked at a, a number of literary adaptations and I, I looked at when the trailer was dropped in relation to when the movie came out and we're looking at about six months. So that, that's where we are right now. So just because there hasn't been a Dark Tower trailer doesn't mean that we should be freaking out that Sony is sitting on a dud. This is just, it's simply the time frame. Um, it, it, it makes sense. Um, but with that said, I still really, really want to see the trailer and I really hope that the trailer sells us and not just us because, you know, you and I, you know, anyone listening to this podcast, we're going to go see the Dark Tower. Um, so I hope that it it speaks to the fans in all of us and I hope that's able to capture new viewers. And as soon as that trailer drops, then I will be all over it. Um, and, and while I have the opportunity, guys, I, I really want to talk about I really want to talk about something that I feel isn't being talked about as much as it should. And that's Candle Cove. Or I'm sorry, Channel Zero Candle Cove. I don't know why it's not being talked about as much as it is. It was talked about a little bit. I heard it here and there on some podcasts. I did see, you know, a couple advertisements, but it did not capture the cultural conversation. Um, and I, uh, I think that the only reason why is because uh it's on it's on the sci-fi channel uh which is unfortunate because i think that for a lot of people sci-fi uh is synonymous with with cheesy and i get it um you know i mean this is the station that that uh that airs you know the sharknado movies so i mean that that's kind of the brand that they built for themselves but just because something is on sci-fi doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be cheesy Right, because if you think about it, um, in the in the early two thousands, uh, the sci-fi was the station that aired Battlestar Galactica, which is an incredible show. Incredible. So if you haven't seen Battlestar Galactica, you, you guys are really doing yourself a disservice. It is uh, one of the um, the the definitive shows to come out in the post nine eleven era, uh, and it's one that even though it takes place. Um, I don't want to, that's a spoiler alert, but even though it takes place in space, I was going to give a time frame, but even though it takes place in space, uh, and it, it, it involves, um, you know, killer cyborgs and, and humans on the run, and it, it, it is, it speaks to the themes of that particular time in, in our lives, um, and in this country's history, um, more potently than, than nearly any other piece of fiction that existed, um, at that time. And Battlestar Galactica was was incredibly well directed, well acted, well written, well edited, the whole nine yards. It was just from top to bottom a good show. I'll admit the last season or so, um, the the direction that it took it, I, I felt that I can't remember his name, Ron, the the, the creator, um, the showrunner. It's I'm really it's going to drive me nuts. I'm sorry, guys. I do apologize, but uh, the 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 director showrunner he um he wound up 
taking the show down a path that you could tell that as he was making it, he was interested in exploring certain themes. And so that was where he took it. It wasn't the natural conclusion, I believe, to where the show began. Um, and that's not necessarily a major fault. I mean, he was just following his uh, storytelling. Ron Moore? Is it Ron? It's Ron Moore, right? Uh, his He was following his, his storytelling uh, sensibilities, and I, that's fine. Um, so I'm not rap, um, writing off Battlestar Galactica because I was less than in love with the where the themes brought the show at the end. Because um, I'm not a big proponent of the, the, if the... If you don't like the ending, then everything before it is awful. It doesn't sour it um, in my book. But... Uh, but no, it, the Sci-Fi Channel had aired Battlestar Galactica. That was its home. So there is something in Sci-Fi that also speaks, yeah, certainly speaks to cheesiness, but it also speaks to quality. Um, so I don't want you to forget that um, or, or have the Sci-Fi Channel be a natural deterrent if you hear that something is on Sci-Fi. What I'm trying to say is all of you need to just go out and watch Channel Zero, Candle Cove. Um, like I said, I had heard about this, and um, a couple weeks ago, my wife and I decided, you know, we had kind of caught up on all our shows, and I said, yay, you know, it gives us time um, to, to finally do this. I, I, I've heard of this. I, I, I want to give it a chance. Let's watch Candle Cove. And, you know, she said, okay. And it was one of those shows that, I think there's six episodes. We It took us two days Um and, and you can get it done, and you can easily get it done in a day. The show is great, guys. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll go into, you know, some of the, the specifics here. Um, I, don't want, I don't want you to, to think that it's the greatest thing ever. I would say this. Um, the, some of the character work from a script level could use some work. Some of the acting isn't that great. Um... The, the characters don't stand out nearly as well as, let's say, Stranger Things. Uh, those are very clearly identifiable characters that, that really just burst out uh, you know, off the screen, whether it's Eleven or Hopper or any of the kids. They were distinct. They were memorable. And I would say that there isn't anyone on, um, on Channel Zero Candle Cove that comes as alive as like the characters i'm just using stranger things as an example so that that's definitely a mark against it that it doesn't reaches its reach its potential um because of the, the the characterization the characterization was just a little bit more thin than i uh would have liked it to have been regardless these are characters that feel very familiar because the structural qualities of the story uh, are very reminiscent of what we have come to expect from Stephen King stories. It's about a, um, it's about a character uh, who is an adult. Uh, Twenty-eight years before, something happened in his childhood. There was a series of murders in his small town, and twenty-eight years later, he returns to his home. Um, the, the murders start again. Uh, there's creepy kid stuff. There is some dark half stuff in there. There's some uh, desperation kind of stuff in there. Um, so there's a lot of elements that you, you recognize from Stephen King stories that, that do make it feel familiar, that really help out the characters that otherwise uh, could, could use a little bit more, uh, more definition. 
with that said though um the 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 main character is played by the actor uh that that played mark brandanowitz in parks and recreation and i as soon as we saw him on the screen, I knew that I was going to just, I was going to really appreciate the show because I was a huge Brandanowitz fan. Uh, and my wife and I constantly argue about this. We, the two of us don't argue. We don't really fight about things, but we do fight about Brandanowitz. She did not like Brandanowitz. I really like Brandanowitz. And I will say that uh, it took Rob Lowe and Adam Scott to replace Mark Brandanowitz on Parks and Recreation. So I'm Team Brandanowitz. Nothing against Adam Scott and Rob Lowe, um, both great characters on Parks and Recreation, but Brandanowitz was the man. Something about the, just something about the actor, um, the the way that, that that he delivers lines. I really like his delivery. Um, Paul Schneider. Paul. It was it was bothering me. Paul Schneider is is the actor. Uh, I just I I like the way that he he has a. Oh, like a, a quiet resignation to his voice. He can be very wry. Um, so I, I like that about him. And uh, I, I don't know. I, I just, I I like his performance and I like what he brought to, to Candle Cove. Some of the other characters, I mean, there's a there's a cop character that, that suffers some losses in in this show that I don't know if it's the actor that, that portrayed him or I don't know if it was the, the script on, on the script level, but you couldn't, you really couldn't tell that he suffered some losses um, or he went through anything on, on, on the show. Uh, it wasn't reflected. And so, I mean, there, there's elements where the, the character work could be better, but guys, this show was really scary, like legitimately scary. So just to, to clarify here, the show is entitled candle cove, sorry, channel zero, colon candle cove so um the, the the name of the series is channel zero and it's an anthology show much in the vein of let's say american horror story and each season is then designated by a particular plot that carries from the beginning to the ending of that season and the following season will have a new plot so that's why we get uh, american story uh, murder house or American Story Asylum, or uh, Coven, or Freak Show, or Hotel, or uh, My Roanoke Nightmare. That's all of them, right? Did I forget any? I might have forgotten. But that's basically what, what Channel Zero does, and the first season that, that they did was uh, Candle Cove, and Candle Cove, um, and then each of the subsequent seasons that are going to continue um, are all based on creepypasta short uh, internet horror stories. Now, for Candle Cove, like I said, it is Paul Schneider, Mark Redanowitz. Um, he is a child psycholo psychologist who is returning to his home in Ohio, small town in Ohio, um, where as a child he had a twin brother. His twin brother, and this is all established in like the first five minutes, his twin brother had been murdered along with an, uh, some other children in town were murdered. Um, the, the twin brother's body was never found, and something causes the adult living brother, Brandanowitz, to go back to this small town 28 years later. And as soon as he goes back there, the murders and the disappearances start happening again. Now, this is the reason why it's called Candle Cove, and this is the reason why I'm talking about it. 28 years before, as the murders were taking place, all of the children were watching this show 
called Candle Cove. It was a children's show. Um, and guys, I'm just talking about right now, I'm getting goosebumps. This thing is nightmare fuel, all right? If you're scared of puppets and like puppet shows, um, this is going to terrify you. And this is... And this is why Candle Cove really, really works. The structure feels very Stephen King, but the horror of Candle Cove feels very David Lynch. So those of you that have been listening to the Stephen King cast for a while now know that I'm a huge fan of David Lynch. Um, and also there's been a lot of Twin Peaks news that I'm just like freaking out about. But um, with Candle Cove, whoever edited this, so a couple strengths for Candle Cove, the it looks beautiful. It's very, very well shot. And the editing um, is just so well done. The, the editing is done in such a way where you will be assaulted with an image that doesn't make sense and then immediately it'll cut away from cut away or um, linger just for a second, just long enough to make it you know really, really eerie. The editing really makes it dreamy and strange and unsettling. It just works. And what works the best about it is how this show is presented. And it's just creepy because the, the, the adults thought that the kids were making up this show um, because the adults couldn't see the show. They just saw static, but the kids were actually watching this, this puppet show and no one knows where it comes from. Uh, but what works is there is a use of reflection or uh, an image being superimposed over another image. So whenever Candle Cove the actual children's show is being shown, there is this um, superimposed image of one of the characters on Candle Cove, the villainous um, Jawbones, I believe his name is. A, it's just a, it's a laughing skeleton uh, puppet, and it's, it's terrifying. And it's always there. So it's like it's coming, it's almost like it's coming through the, the, the screen, or you can kind of like look at it like it's actually sitting next to you in the living room and you see its reflection. It just creates uh, an unsettling otherworldly quality to this, uh, this, this, this children's show. And it just works. So I, I think that it's six episodes, well worth your time. It gets really, really, not just like spooky um, or like weird stuff happening. It, it, it like, there's going to be imagery that is just going to stick with you. That's going to be so potent and so powerful and so um, just well done that you're, you're going to be like not only effectively creeped out, not not just saying to yourself on a cerebral level like I do a lot of time, oh, that's scary. No, you're going to be legitimately like, Ugh, what did I just see? And it's going to stick with you. And then you're going to appreciate that for for its effectiveness. Um, and you're going to, you know, you know, for all of my dissing of the character work, you're going to be involved in, in, in trying to figure out exactly what is happening in this town. Um, you're going to want to un, unravel the mystery of what, what's happening. You know, what is the deal with Candle Cove? Um, you know, what happened to the twin brother? What is this tooth creature that's walking around that's another thing there is a creature uh child-sized about uh that that is just completely made of teeth uh it is so scary and the way that that is filmed is great because that's like it's not hidden it it just you, you just see it fully and it's just so disturbing and it just likes to like stick 
its mouth over people's fingers. It's just, it's so, so disturbing. Um, it's good. It's good. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's a show that, that really takes your sense of safety and really messes with it. Um, it it's, it's that kind of supernatural threat where you're really helpless um, because the, the, the level of uh, otherworldly monstrousness is, is so unfathomably uh, overwhelming. Um, it, it, it really deals with that dream logic that, that really speaks to me. So uh, I cannot, I cannot uh, recommend Candle Cove highly enough. It's just, it was a really nice treat. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and, you know, with six episodes, it just gets, it just gets right to it. And, uh, and, and actually, you know, you see things in here. I remember when I, I reviewed uh, Dr. Sleep, uh, one of the things that I had mentioned was in Stephen King books, or not really in, in fiction that much, but especially in Stephen King books, you, you don't see adults interacting with their, their parents, you see a lot of, um, you know, children interacting with their parents, um, and you see a lot of children pseudo parental figures, but you don't see, you know, your your typical Stephen King adult, 35, 40, 45 years old, um, interacting much with their parents. And I I thought that the fact that that Wendy, spoiler alert, is dead in Doctor Sleep really removed what could have been a very powerful relationship between her and adult Danny. And this no doubt has to do with the fact that, that Stephen King's mother, um, I believe died when he was, you know, relatively a young man. So, I mean, he, it's not like he has that life basis to have had, a, a you know, an adult, um, in his life as, as he himself, you know, was, was an adult. But, you know, I, you know, I'm just thinking about uh, everyone my age. You know, I'm 30, soon to be 36, um, and I'm thinking about people even, you know, 10, 20 years older than me. And all of our adult, you know, our parents are still alive, so it's not out of their own possibility for, you know, a middle-aged man or woman to be teaming up with their parent to solve a uh, supernatural threat. And, and what I'm trying to say is, we get that here. We get that here. You know, so when the the the, the brother returns home um, to his hometown. You know, he he's he's teaming up with his mother to figure out what happened to their, you know, to her other son, his brother. And this this past that they have, you know, he was the one that lived. The other one had died. Um, you know, that 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 has broken their relationship. So I just I really liked watching that because that's not something that you see all the time. It's like in, in, in um, uh, Jeepers Creepers when it, it wasn't a, a love interest relationship. It was a brother and sister relationship. And that's not something that you see all the time. Either. So that's uh, the fact that we had the, the mother-son um, kind of duo uh, was something that I, I thought that I'm glad that they, they went with that. So again, Candle Cove. Um, I, I, I think everyone should go out there and see it. Um, I can't say enough about it positively, and that's important for me to get out there because the rest of this podcast, I'm not going to have much to say um, about. Uh, it, there's not going to be a lot of positivity coming for the remainder of the, the podcast because I will be speaking about and reviewing 1992's Sleepwalkers. So 
before I get any further, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the Wikipedia summary so that we have a basis upon which I can build my analysis. From Wikipedia, Charles Brady and his mother are sleepwalkers, nomadic, shape-shifting energy vampires who feed off the life force of virgin women. Though they normally maintain a human form, they can transform partially or fully into human-sized bipedal werecats, presumably their natural form at will. They are considerably more resilient than humans and have powers of both telekinesis and illusion. Their, their one weakness is cats, who are not only able to see through their illusions, but whose claws are capable of inflicting severe to fatal wounds upon them. It is revealed that they also maintain an incestuous relationship. I don't know how I'm going to get through this review. I mean, honestly, just just reading that Wikipedia first paragraph, there's more, but it is so insane uh, the, the, what the, the, the basis of the, this movie is. Like, it... No wonder the, the movie is garbage. I mean, it's not like it was built on a, a stable ground. Um, anyway, Charles and Mary have taken up residence in a small Indiana town, having recently fled Bodega Bay, California, where they use the alias Martha and Carl Brody after draining and killing a young girl there. Charles attends the local high school, and there he meets Tanya Robertson in his creative writing class. Charles feigns romantic interest in Tanya in order to take her life force for both himself and his mother, who is starving. Tanya does not suspect the real reason Charles is interested in her. At first, it seems that Charles has genuinely fallen in love with Tanya, to the dismay of his jealous mother. On their first date, however, at a picnic at the nearby cemetery, Charles attempts to drain her life force while kissing her. Tanya tries frantically to ward off Charles by bashing his head with her camera, scratching his face, and ultimately plunging a corkscrew into his left eye, though nothing she does seem to cause Charles more than temporary discomfort. As this happens, Deputy Sheriff Andy Simpson, who had earlier tried to pull Charles over for speeding and seemingly trying to run down a young schoolgirl while passing a stopped school bus, drives by the cemetery and notices Charles' now undisguised car. While Tanya flees to, um, flees to him for help, Charles attacks Simpson and kills him. While Charles then turns to resume feeding off of Tanya, the deputy's cat, Clovis, rises to the occasion and violently scratches him in the face and chest. Mortally wounded, Charles staggers back home to his mother who is able to make them both dim, i.e. turn themselves invisible, and thus keep Charles from being arrested when the police storm their house. Ominously, a small number of cats begin to gather outside their house. Knowing that the only way for her dying son to survive is to feed, Mary attacks the Robertson household, killing several deputies and state troopers and severely wounding Tanya's parents. She kidnaps Tanya and takes her back to her house. Charles is near death, but Mary revives him, and Charles makes a final attempt to drain Tanya's life force. However, Tanya plunges her fingers into his eyes, killing him. Tanya manages to escape with the help of the sheriff, who is later impaled by Mary on the picket fence surrounding the house. The now large number of cats that have been gathering around their house throughout the movie, led by Clovis, all jump on Mary and claw her in a violent attack until she bursts into flames. As she dies, she screams that Tanya killed her only son. The movie ends with Mary lying ablaze on her driveway and Tanya hugging Clovis as her savior. So, like I said, 
I have never seen Sleepwalkers. Uh, I, I think that we all know that this movie does not necessarily have the best reputation. I remember, you know, I remember going to the the, the video store uh, every nearly every day um, when I was when I was growing up and. You know, I, I remember renting movies, and I remember you know watching the trailers of the movies, and I remember seeing. You know, I, I used to watch a lot of horror movies, so I saw the trailer for for Sleepwalkers all the time. And being a Stephen King fan, I was always interested. But even then, I was like, this movie doesn't look good. And, but I, I I liked the idea of um, I don't know. I I was about to say I liked the idea of the movie, but even then, I didn't. I just I I have fond memories of going to this movie store, and they had these pamphlets. Um, where you could just, there are free pamphlets that, uh, you know, would have, you know, the upcoming releases. And I just remember always seeing the poster for, for, uh, for Sleepwalkers, but I never bothered seeing it until tonight. Uh, and it was bad. I mean, let's just not cut around the, I mean, this is a bad, bad movie. Uh, strongly recommended. I mean, I think that everyone should see it due to its badness. It's one of those, it's so bad, it's good. Um, and I'll definitely get into the whys. But here's here's my review, guys. I mean, this movie begins with uh, a dictionary definition of what we're dealing with here. According to the Encyclopedia of Arcane Knowledge, a sleepwalker is a nomadic, shape-shifting creature with human and feline origins. Vulnerable to the deadly scratch of the cat, the sleepwalker feeds upon the life force of virginal human females probable source of the vampire legend. So that's how the movie starts. Now let's take a closer look at that. Regardless of the failings of this movie, and there are many, the rules are established right up front, and that gives us something to work with. I'm not saying that the rules make any sense, because they don't, or that they should even be applied to this story. But supernatural stories need perimeters to establish logical boundaries that we can wrap our minds around. It's easier to accept a nocturnal creature that's going to live forever and suck our blood if we understand that a stake through its heart will kill it. Because sleepwalkers are an unknown creature to us, establishing the rules up front is a necessity. Maybe. If you haven't heard by now, um, I am being joined by my two co-hosts, uh, one of which is, uh, I've been driven insane by having to watch this movie. Um, so, uh, as I was saying, sleepwalkers because this is a made-up creature by Stephen King. I mean, we're, we're not dealing with werewolves. We're not dealing with vampires. Um, we, we kind of are of a sort, but the traditional vampire, we're not. This is sleepwalkers. So this dictionary little bit of information that we get at the beginning tells us everything that we are going to get. Shapeshifters, soul-sucking, cats, and virgins. That's this movie. In Bodega Bay, California, we made a couple of cops investigating a horrific cat massacre. Dozens of cats are strung up around a house with blood-drenched walls on the inside. And Dutch tilts. It is Dutch tilts galore as the officers investigate a mysterious howling. We get our first cat jump scare as a cat jumps out of a closet, followed by first non-cat jump scare, a mummified little girl with a rose in her hair. We get our second cat-scratch scene transition before moving into the credits, heavy with Egyptian imagery. Already, to me, this feels like a store-brand version of Clive Barker's Nightbreed. Clive Barker, who, by the way, makes an appearance in this movie. 
We then cut to Indiana to the sounds of Sleepwalk by the Ventures, and I am furious that such a good song is maybe. What are you doing? Ooh, I can just, ooh, I just feel bad. I can just hear the static electricity all over her. Um, anyway, I'm furious that such a good song is being used for this movie. Um, you know, though we shouldn't be surprised. You know, I mean, the, the movie does share its name, but still, still. Unexpectedly, we meet a shirtless Charles Brady who is obsessing over the high school yearbook picture of Tanya. Twin Peaks' uh, Magikin Amic. Is that how you pronounce it? I can never pronounce it right. Um... Or as David Lynch likes to pronounce it, I believe, Midgekin. I believe that that's his nickname for her. Um, after carving the first initial of her name into his arm, he proceeds to dance with Mary, who is staring out the window in fear of a kitty cat. Which brings us to, I guess, probably the major issue of this movie, uh, that cats are supposed to be a source of fear for these creatures. Look, guys, I love cats and all. Um... And and one of the reasons why I love cats is one of the reasons why um, a lot of people don't like cats, and it's 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 because they are vicious. They are monstrous little creatures. Like I love nothing more than watching videos of children, uh, like toddlers, walking and being just jumped on by cats, who then will just pounce on the the, the toddler, make the toddler you know fall over, and then the cats will just leave. I loved, um. I loved my cat. I had a cat growing up, Archie. Um, you were everything. I miss you, buddy. Um, but I, what I loved about Archie is that he and I would just have these epic battles. I would walk through the living room, and he would just jump out of nowhere and like attack me. And it was great. It was great. Um, so I love cats. I love cats. And I love the viciousness of cats. But uh, this, um, what what we see here, we we do not see. I mean, I, I guess it's not even that we see, we, we could see scary cats. They're just cats. They're, it's, they're, they're not going to instill fear in us, and yet they are the source of terror for, uh, for these creatures. And it's just right there, the inherent premise does not work. Oof. Um, but even though it's not scary, it's fun. I mean, there's something inherently silly about seeing little kitty cats stalking these shapeshifters. Especially in this day and age of internet cat memes. Um, so the woman that Charles here is is dancing with gets us to our. Uh, I, I, I just I, I can't believe that it's going here. Um, aspect of this movie that he's dancing with his mother. So uh, not only are we talking about cats, shapeshifters, virgins, and life force, we're also talking about cats, shapeshifters, virgins, life force, and incest. So, hey, Game of Thrones fans, here we go. Um, now, that's a hell of an intro, and I don't know what's worse, the incest or the dirty dancing-inspired cleaning montage from Tanya herself. So this is what we learn of this character uh, from her introduction. She likes to dance while cleaning, works in a movie theater so devoid of customers it might as well be abandoned, and provides free Coke and movie tickets to incestuous cat shape shifters. Now, I didn't even mention the, the capper here to the dance scene, which is her accidentally dumping a bucket of popcorn over her head. Now, naturally, it's meant to evoke a laugh, which it does. It's just that the laugh that uh, does come out, it's being everyone's laughing at the movie, not with the movie. And it, it sets up a pattern of something that we're going to see, uh, of just the, these slapstick moments that come out of nowhere that I, I just don't know how... It, 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 I, how did... 
not to not to riff off of another way more successful podcast, and I'll talk about this in a little bit, but how did this get made? That is the question that I'm going to come back to, is, and the, this is probably the question that you have had, but how did this get made? Um, Charles returns home, and uh, he's immediately beset upon by a police officer who has a very Stephen King joke about being allergic to the IRS. Um, and inside the safety of the house, Charles and his mother jump at every meow they hear outside the window, which again, is just absurd. Um, then in class at school, uh, the title of the movie is invoked when Charles reads an original short story that shares the same name as this movie. So it gives the werecats a name, sleepwalkers, but to me, they're just werecats because I don't know why they're otherwise called sleepwalkers because Charles likes them uh, the name of the song, uh, I guess. I think so, because Mary says that that's his favorite song. They have sex to the song. Um, I guess that's why they're called sleepwalkers. Um, and here we meet, but I mean, if there's another reason, like an actual reason why they're, they're called sleepwalkers, I, I don't know. Um, but here we meet Mr. Fallows, Fallows, I just think of Brian Fellows, uh, the creative reading or creative writing or some, some sort of literary teacher that at first praises Charles for his writing before seemingly developing a grudge towards him for cracking a joke, I, I guess. Um, but not before this guy smashes a jock's hand with a ruler. Now, this scene is immediately followed by what I assume is the principal dragging a high schooler out of class by the ear. Now, I, the, the best Stephen King stories are timeless. The worst Stephen King stories are terribly dated. And this, with its draconian senses of, uh, of, of just uh, capital punishment, um, this is very, very dated. Now, after class, Tanya and her friends discuss how dreamy Charles is, in a manner I'm sure is 100% authentic to how groups of girls talk. Um, oh, and this scene also includes the always popular blowjob gesture. Now, I get that teenagers should sometimes be depicted as dumbasses every now and then, but I am not sure why King is reaching for the lowest of the low-hanging fruit here, which he's doing. Now, and to think that five years out from when this movie uh, was released, he would publish Wizard in Glass, which features a painfully honest depiction of teenage love. And Wizard in Glass is one of my favorite Stephen King books, period, just based on how well it's done. And it wouldn't work if we didn't believe the, the relationship between Roland and Susan. Um, for all of its... Uh, like annoying teenageness of it all. I mean, there, there's a truth there that is completely missing from all aspects of this movie. Back at Tanya's house, in her bedroom, we have a hysterical laugh fest in which Tanya shows Charles her bedroom while she tries to hide her underwear from him. And while looking at one of her photographs, she needs to find a way to grab the underwear right in front of the picture before he sees it. How can he not see it, guys? These hijinks! They're hilarious, people. I mean, who knew that King was such a comedian? And while leaving her house, Charles is beset upon by a grabby Mr. Follows, who turns out realizes that Charles isn't who he says he is, and I guess wants to molest him to keep his mouth shut? It's just, it's so inappropriate for, like, the goofiness of this movie. Now, what follows is Fellows, or what follows is Fallows, whatever his name is, <laughs> and I just want to say, I'm Brian Fellows. Uh, anyway, he's running for his life through the woods, um, 
with Charles looking like a vampire reject from Buffy in a scene that I guess is supposed to be suspenseful, but like everything else in the movie is just it's 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 goofy is the term that keeps coming up from the fellows follows fallows I'm Brian Fellows from the fallows vision um which results with him knocking himself out by running into a tree while holding it's like his hand had been ripped off but it's one of those cases where now he he clearly is just like pulling his arm inside his sleeve and you can you can tell and as he's running he's trying to keep his 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 hand from shooting up um so he slams into a tree and he knocks himself out um and then like the camera is spinning and it's all dramatic and spinning around his body and it's over the it's it's a pan over the the, the headshot of of charles who is supposed to be eating uh brian fellows but is clearly just moving his head back and forth above the actor's unmoving body um it, it's just i i don't understand how how this was meant to be anything other than a comedy um so it's just goofy it's just it's it's just so goofy but not as goofy as the following scene where charles is pursued by a police officer with a cat sidekick named clovis um it's a car chase scene that concludes with the officer pulling alongside Charles's car, and once Clovis spots him, Charles. Once Clovis spots Charles, oh boy! I like, like I think the scene is on YouTube. You probably should check it out. I mean, it's unintentionally hilarious. Like it automatically cuts to um, a close-up of of Charles, like with a backdrop of a green screen. So, which is just your giveaway that we're about to get a special effect here. And it's just that early 90s transformation uh, effect. And it looks awful. And whether it's the close-up of Charles transforming or the close-up of Clovis at the window. Uh, I, I, oh, God. Guys, this movie is terrible. Terrible. But at least, at least it's a fun terrible to watch. Um so I think the scene is on YouTube. You should check it out. So Charles manages to get far uh, ahead enough of the cop to pull over and then wills his car into invisibility. Um, and as I said in the Wikipedia summary, it's not actually being invisible. It's being dim. Um, so that was cool that, you know, Stephen King was able to sneak in one of his villain's superpowers. And this is a superpower that we've seen of a number Stephen King villain, so villain. So this was a fun little Stephen Kingism showing up, actually seeing uh, Dim in action, and actually hearing one of the characters refer to it as being Dim. So that that was definitely as a Stephen King fan, that was that was fun. Um, after Charles and his mother uh, have a, another romantic evening, uh, Tanya visits the house in a scene where Charles tries to keep Tanya away from the mirrors in the house because the mirrors reflect the true image of these werecats. Um, who, and they don't look frightening, by the way. Um, but it, it, this scene raises the question, if, if, if these characters want to blend in as normies, then why would they put in a surefire way of being discovered, uh, like putting mirrors in their houses? Like I get, I get why from a, like, if you're constructing the scene, it's supposed to add tension, but it just doesn't hold up to scrutiny. 
But then again, nothing. Nothing in this movie does. Um, Tanya and Charles then go for a romantic date to the cemetery where... I, I don't even know how to describe it. Like, I, I feel bad because I, I cannot put into words what is uh, simply just visceral reactions that you have to something that you're seeing visually. Like, so I, I cannot really describe it. But what happens here, it's like something out of, like, Wet Hot American Summer or They Came Together. Um, I it's just so um meet cute but like a parody of meet cute like tanya's he's taking pictures of charles and it, they're all like like laughing and he's like oh and um he, he looks like a village idiot and he's like has his hands up like no no don't take pictures of me but he's like getting closer to her and she's getting closer to him and they manage to like trip over the picnic basket and then like careen down a small hill while the camera is spinning around them. Um, and again, I'm, I'm not describing this right. Um, it, it is, it, it, but it's, it's like, um, not just a comedy, but like a, like a satire. Um, it is so unintentionally hilarious. That's the thing that makes it so funny is that at no point do you think that the creators have any idea what they're doing. Um, and uh, it, it's Mick Garris, the director here, and I should talk about Mick Garris in a little bit, but, um, it's, it's his complete lack of awfulness uh, of, it's his complete lack of awareness of what kind of movie that he's making that makes this scene and the entire movie so awful. Um, because this asinine played for cute fall, um, it, 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 it is an innocent moment that immediately leads to an attempted rape um, or an attempted soul-sucking or attempted murder scene, an attempted bad thing happening to a girl scene. Um, it, it's, it's just how it goes from one such a completely different tone to this other tone, but it is shot both, both scenes um, and both tones are shot exactly the same way. Like, it just shows that McGarris can't capture a tone. Like it's just one size fits all way of filming that makes what's happening very inappropriate and uncomfortable, but not for the reasons that it should be. This should be a deeply uncomfortable scene because of what's happening in the scene. Instead, for me, it was a very uncomfortable scene because the director didn't seem to understand what he was doing with the camera. Um, and to top it off, and I should have said this before, this movie suffers from the number one way in which you can determine if a script is atrocious. If the characters just say each other's name in every sentence. So let me play you a clip here. I couldn't breathe. Isn't this the excitement you were talking about, Tanya? <laughs> <laughs> Right. We do understand each other, Tanya. <laughs> See, this is just how we live, Tanya. <laughs> Tanya doesn't have to hurt. Don't you get it, Tanya? I need you. 
I need you to live. God, please don't kill me. <laughs> Tanya, I don't think you're entering into the spirit of this. Why don't you just think of yourself as lunch? Uh, there's a lot of that in this movie. Um, so this scene continues, uh, by the way, with the werecat uh, hopping to his feet, attacking Tanya. Tanya manages to run into the arms of Clovis's partner, who Charles quickly dispatches with a pencil to the ear and a clever quip. But don't forget, this officer didn't come alone. Charles forgot all about Clovis. And what happens next, again, this movie, this movie, like I can't put it into words, it just needs to be seen to believe. Charles is attacked by Toonces the Driving Cat. That's the only way I can describe it. For those of you who don't know who Toonces is, uh, one of Saturday Night Live's best recurring skits from the 90s was this wonderfully absurd premise about Toonces the driving cat. The cat who could drive a car, he drives around all over the town, Toonces the driving cat. Each skit would last no more than a minute. <laughs> and all, all it consisted of was just a, a, a puppet cat uh, driving a car while two cast members sat in the back thoroughly impressed with the cat's driving skills. Every skit ended with one of the passengers screaming, Toonces, look out! Before the camera would cut to stock footage of a car flying off a cliff. Now, as ridiculous as that skit was, it can't hold a candle to the image of an actor in werecat makeup literally wrestling with a cat puppet and screaming in pain and fear at the top of his lungs. Afterwards, Uncle Stevie makes his trademark appearance in an offbeat little sequence in which he tries to explain how he doesn't want to be involved in any of this, which maybe is, I don't know, a little bit of a documentary in which Stephen King actually was trying to get out of having anything to do with this. Um, but this not only includes Stephen King, but also Toby Hooper and a seriously baby-faced Clive Barker as well. Like, it is... When you like, when I think of Clive Barker now, like I think of like you know the 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 real like um, gravelly voiced like super jacked Clive Barker. Like I don't think of like God, he looks like a kid. It's it it's it was it was crazy. It was crazy to see. Um, but it's fun to see these cameos, and there's further cameos to come up later. Um, but it's just fun. It's just fun to see like the horror genre kind of coming out. Um, back at the house. Mary attempts to care for a dying Charles who is suffering from a fatal case of cat scratch fever. She uses the ability to grow dim to make the two of them disappear while the police officers search the house. In another great case of what the hell is he doing in this movie, uh, Ron Perlman shows up, thankful for once that he's not the one in ridiculous makeup. That night, Mary uses her dim powers to sneak up on two bumbling police officers before laying siege to Tanya's house. And again, I, I, I feel like I'm beating a horse, or in this case, a cat, a dead cat, um, or more appropriately, a dead werecat named Charles. But, uh, but Mick Garris just doesn't know how to convey the appropriate tone for any particular scene. So when Mary smashes a glass vase across Tanya's dad's face and he throws himself into an end table, it's supposed to be a violent and surprising scene. But the way the actor is filmed literally finding a table and then hurling himself into it 
it turns into what should be a violent scene into a slapstick comedy. The comedic stylings of Mick Garris continue, with a police officer entering the living room to save the day, stopping to pronounce, get away from her, before slowly walking towards her without handcuffs, a gun, or even hands raised in either a defensive or attack position. He simply walks towards her because the scene is going to require her to shove him, which she does, she just simply shoves him and he goes down. There's a face-off between the two mothers, and Tanya's mom is thrown through a window that, again, it looks more appropriate for a Saturday Night Live skit. Uh, like, I don't know, like Matt Foley, right? When Chris Farley would play Matt Foley, Matt Motivational Speaker, or uh, Kristen Wiig's um, Sue, uh, the, the, the character who can't contain her excitement for surprises. And this is a very Saturday Night Live-centric episode, but, um, but that's what it looks like I mean, when the mother goes through the window. Uh, the police officer, who is pushed... Um, starts firing his gun and he's missing every shot and I, I, I don't know if it's because it's just a terrible shot or because of her ill-defined magic powers and it honestly could be either based on the way he exits the scene like again like it, it's from the Three Stooges it's just something that needs to be observed and I'm telling you I can't do this movie justice I, I, I and I, I mentioned it earlier I just I not only do I not know how this movie got made, I don't know how the gang over it, how did this get made, how they haven't tackled this movie yet. Because I feel like this movie was made for one reason and one reason alone, and that's Jason Mansukis. So if there are any crossover listeners here, please just go out and shoot some emails over to, uh, over to the gang at uh, how this get made uh, because this is one that that needs to needs to get done they like the the Stephen King episodes they do uh, are, are always very fun um, I listened to the maximum overdrive one this summer and uh, we, we lit and we listened to the lawnmower man not too long ago and I think that they incorrectly categorize monkey shines as a Stephen King movie which is not um, by the way so I would like for them to uh, to tackle Sleepwalkers because that would be right up their alley. Anyway, back at the police station, Joe Dante and John Landis are two more uh, horror directors that, that make an appearance here. Um, and they're examining the developed photos taken from Tanya's camera. Horace, the bumbling police officer back at Tanya's house, is then killed by the most gratuitous use of corn ever put uh, in, in cinema. Uh, and that is saying something for a storyteller who wrote a short story that was later turned into a movie called The Children of the Corn. Now, Horace is stabbed in the back with, you guessed it, an ear of corn. And due to the nature of the murder weapon, it did make me wonder, just for a second, if King and Company knew how bad this movie is. Because why else would they use a weapon so undeniably corny? And I'm serious, like... Is this meant to be a joke? Like, and if so, does that color the rest of the movie as a joke? I just can't help but think that it's not a joke. That's the thing. Anyway, um, the, the streets are full of kitty cats on their way to put an end to this tomfoolery. Or rather, tomcatfoolery. 
The police arrive to Tanya's house as Mary is dragging her across the lawn, and as she takes out Ron Perlman with ease, the sheriff back at the station calls for backup from Castle Rock, um, which, with this being in Indiana, uh, would, I think, take Alan Pangborn and company a little while to, to get there. Um, but this is followed by our next what-the-fuck-am-I-watching moment when Mary, grabbing Ron Perlman's gun, fires through the windows of the cop cars, causing each of the cop cars to, in perfect 90s movie moments here, to explode. One bullet each through the window makes each car burst into flame. Was it in Family Guy? I can't remember where it was, but I could have sworn there was like a cartoon where there was a horse and buggy chase and the horse and buggy went flying off a cliff and then burst into flames. It's like that level of absurd that we see. And then Mary returns home to a yard overrun by the big bad kitty cats. She drives right through her living room as the cats start to burst into her house. Charles is seemingly dead on the couch and with her ill-defined magic powers, Mary makes sleepwalk start playing again. Charles is then forced to suck the life force from Tanya while in full cat form. Now, Mick Garris, guys, really likes his early 90s special effects. So if you liked his Randall Flag transformation effect from the stand, you get to see it here again. And it's just as good. Tanya fights off Monster Charles while Mary fights off cat after cat. Mary goes into full cat mode and is about to kill Tanya, but thankfully our hero of the movie, Clovis, leads uh, the charge against her. And soon enough, she's covered in cats and with the same magical properties that caused Mary to explode the cop cars with bullets, the cats are then able to make Mary explode with cat scratches. 1992, by the way. Big year for cats. First, they brought Michelle Pfeiffer back to life, and here they form an army in Sleepwalkers. And really, as soon as Mary bursts into flames, the movie is over, thankfully for all of us. So, um, let me see here. It is... <laughs> Almost an hour now, and I've been talking about Sleepwalkers for far too long, so let's wrap this up. So first of all, Majkin um, Amik, or Midgkin, as David Lynch likes to call her. Um, I feel bad, uh, because 1990, uh, when 1990 exploded, the girls of Twin Peaks were everywhere. I mean, they graced the cover of Rolling Stone, and one of my first major crushes was on Magikin Amik. Uh, her Shelley the Waitress I fell in love with. Um, and I, you know, loved the idea of her starring in her own movie. And a Stephen King movie. It was great. It would have been awesome. But unfortunately, this was not her breakout vehicle. Um, she isn't given anything to do in this movie except react to things. And uh, it's just she's not good in it. <laughs> Um, which isn't to say that she's not a good actress. I mean, I like I said, I, I loved her in Twin Peaks. She was great as Shelley. And I'm really looking forward to her coming back as Shelley. Is she still Shelley the Waitress? I don't know. Is she still Shelley Johnson? I don't know. Is she Shelley Briggs? Um, or is she just Shelley? We're going to find out in Twin Peaks. Uh, but this was not this was not good. <laughs> this was not a good role. Like I said, she wasn't asked to do much other than scream and react and bite her lip. Um, and she did all those things very, very well. But I can see how this did not, uh, in turn, turn her into a, a major star. So, I'm sorry, Matchkin. 
Uh, and then we have Mick Garris. Now, here's the thing, guys. I have heard that Mick Garris is like a really, really nice guy. I've never met him, and if I ever did, I would feel awful that I can't stand his movies. But I can't help it. This movie is bad. Like, really bad. And that rests on, you know, part on, you know, it's, it, it, it is straddled between the shoulders of, of two men, one of which being Stephen King, and, but the other one is Mick Garris. And it, it, a lot of this is that his directorial choices turn this movie into a comedy. I mean, it would be one thing if it was intentional, but unfortunately, I'm, I'm telling you, I really don't think that it is intentional. I think that it is unintentional. And such a lack of awareness uh, is cringeworthy. As is the premise! I mean, guys, this is a story in which the antagonists are afraid of cats, kitty cats, cute little kitty cats. I mean, there is no way to dress this up uh, to make it frightening. I, I mean, building an insensuous love story around this premise doesn't complicate it. It doesn't give it extra depth. It just makes it gross. It'd be one thing if there were some redeeming qualities to the movie, but there's just not. There's not. And then going back to the cats... I mean, the, the movie's central concept forces us to endure footage of monsters either cowering in fear or wrestling with house cats. I mean, even saying that is inherently cheesy. I don't know how a movie like this makes it past the idea stage. Now, as dumb as the execution is, I wouldn't have minded if the sleepwalkers popped up somewhere in a Stephen King story. I mean, hell, I mean, who's to say that they weren't there in the Dixie Pig in the pages of the Dark Tower? I mean, there were so many nasty vampire creatures in that scene. I mean, it's not hard to imagine this particular species of vampire showing up to get a shout-out. So, you know, maybe they did. But I, I, I think that, you know, I would embrace them if they if they showed up again um, as as just a little cameo. Not these two, two characters, but, you know, characters of, of the same species, I think, would be fun. Um, so, guys, that's it. That's Sleepwalkers. Um... I, I recommend it. I recommend it. Uh, get some friends together. Sit back and watch this train wreck of a movie. It is, it is awful. Um, and I didn't even really talk about the, the deputy uh, whose partner is Clovis the Cat because he's comedic gold as well. Um, but this movie is awful. And for anyone that, that just doesn't like Stephen King because they've seen the Stephen King movies, like, I get it. Like, if... if they saw Sleepwalkers and judged Stephen King based on that. I get it. I get why they wouldn't like it. This is terrible. Um, complete lack of awareness on, on the storytellers for, for this movie. Um, oof, oof, rough movie. So that's all I got for this week, guys. Uh, feel free to, as always, write into Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com. Uh, feel free to, uh, to leave a review. I've gotten some nice reviews over the last month or so. So even though I'm not putting out new episodes every week, um, you know, keep those reviews coming. And as I've been saying over the last couple of weeks, um, and I've been recording over the last couple of weeks now, um, I don't know when my next episode is gonna gonna be. Uh, so, you know, uh, just because I released two um, in the days leading up to New Year's Eve, and this now it's january 14th so you know a little, i've been coming out a little bit more regularly than than i had been between november to december um i don't know when my next one will be so the next time you hear uh a stephen king cast episode hopefully it will be for the dark tower uh trailer review but you never know you never know keep your eyes tuned keep me in your feed 
Um, keep me in your heart for a while. And uh, in the meantime, guys, may you have long days and pleasant nights. And I will see you here next time where M-O-O-N spells Stephen Kingcast. Jinx is the driving cat, the cat who could drive a car. He drives around all over the town. Jinx is the driving cat. Jinx is the cat who could drive a car.